I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. Hello everyone, and welcome to the podcast. This episode has to be one of the most thought-provoking, and, from that, one of the most moving I've done. As anti-Semitism rises around the world, the stories retold in this interview serve as potent reminders of the atrocities of the Holocaust, and also, hopefully, speak to the inherent power of music to help restore our basic humanity. My guest today travels the world with an absolutely unique collection, set of musical instruments, and he is the co-founder of Violins of Hope. So, Afshi Weinstein, welcome. Thanks for being with me today. It's a pleasure to be here, Andrew. Thank you for the invitation. Now, before we get into the, uh, the traveling with this collection, maybe you'll tell us a little bit about what it is and how it was set up. You're, you're the, the co-founder, so you obviously have a partner who's doing this with you. Um, how did it all happen? I mean, it was, uh, in a way, a mistake. Um, what happened is, in the 1930s, when the Nazis started get, to get into power in Europe, Brunislav Hubermann, who was one of the best uh, soloists of the time, when he saw what was going on, he decided that he wants to try and help Jewish musicians and um, give them basically work and take them out of Europe. His solution was to found an orchestra in Palestine, in Israel, um, which was a very difficult thing to do. Israel was under the British mandate. Uh, The British government did not give certificates for people to come and just live in Israel. He had uh, friends in high places, as we say, like Weizmann and Albert Einstein, who helped him a lot uh, to raise money, especially here in the United States. And um, he started doing uh, auditions basically all over Europe. Now, one of the things that he did, he had a curtain when he was doing the auditions. And when he was asked why he had a curtain, he said he didn't want to see the faces of the people he would not choose because he thought that Europe might go into a war and maybe some of these people will get hurt. He ended up choosing many musicians. Many of them were the leading musicians of their own orchestras um, from all over Europe. He brought them to Israel alongside with their families and basically bringing to Israel about 1,000 people, which was quite an amazing achievement, thinking that basically certificates to come to live in Israel was something which was very difficult to get. Many of those musicians, they came from uh, Germany and Austria, and uh, German and violin and bow makers were actually very good friends with many of the musicians. From what we know today, there were maybe two or three German uh, makers who were part of the Nazi party. On the contrary, most of them actually helped Jewish musicians by buying their uh, instruments, so, so giving them money and sometimes even actually hiding them at home, taking a very big risk to themselves and their own families. My grandfather and my grandmother, my father's parents, they immigrated to Israel from Lithuania in 1938. My grandmother had seven or eight brothers and sisters 
and all her family was killed during the war. My grandfather was one out of 11 and only one of his brothers stayed alive. And after the war in Israel, there was a very, very strong boycott on everything German. Nobody wanted to touch anything made in Germany, something to do with Germany. And uh, many of the musicians, they came to my grandfather and told him, either you're going to buy this instrument for me or I'm simply going to destroy it. In those times, my father, my grandfather already knew what happened to his family, that he basically lost all his family, his uh, wife, my grandmother's family. But he didn't want to see the instruments being destroyed. And even you know that he knew that there is no chance to sell them again. He collected whatever he could. He bought the instruments he could. Some of them are really fantastic German-made instruments. It stayed in our workshop for many, many years. And um, basically until 1991, we never thought about it. We never did uh, put any attention to them. In 91, my father got an apprentice from Dresden, which was, as everybody knows, Eastern Europe until uh, 1989. And um, this bowmaker, his name is Daniel Schmidt. When he came to Israel, he didn't really know about the Holocaust too much. Of course, everybody knew about the Second World War, but the Holocaust, the founding of the Palestine Orchestra, and as a person who loves uh, history, he started searching and asking my father many questions. He met many survivors. He met some of the founding members of the orchestra, which were still clients of my father. And when he saw the instruments, he asked my father, how come that he has such a beautiful collection of German made instruments and how they arrived. My father told him the story and um, it took him about three years to convince my father to do a lecture in Germany for the violin and bowmaker, the German violin and bowmakers about those instruments and how they arrived to Israel. Now, Daniel is coming from a very known family of musical makers, instrument makers. We traveled in many places and sometimes, you know, he would find a, a bow and say, ah, this is my great uncle, this is my great grandfather. And um, this lecture, which was done in Dresden in 1999, was basically the first lecture of what today is called Violins of Hope. After that lecture, my father spoke on a radio show, not on a podcast, um, and he asked people if they had instruments of people who survived or maybe passed away. We all know about many, many musicians who survived or died during the war, but we never had their instruments. The next day in the morning, we got a phone call from a person called Nadir Korngold. And he brought us basically the first violin that uh, we had, we got into the collection with a story. And it's a very interesting violin, very unique, um, quite an amazing story. It was made by a person, a Jewish violin maker named Yaakov Zimmerman in Warsaw in 1924. It has a beautiful Star of David inlaid on the back and the label is in Hebrew. And the label reads, I made this violin for my loyal friend, Mr. Shimon Korngold, Warsaw 1924, Yaakov Zimmerman. And uh, Shimon Korngold from what his uh, nephew uh, Nadir told us 
He was a wealthy industrialist in Warsaw before the war. He had uh, lots of business and was a wealthy person. When the war started, he ran away. He ran all the way to Tashkent, Uzbekistan, where unfortunately he died from typhus probably. And after the war in 1947, one of his best friends came to the Korngold family in Jerusalem, knocked on the door, and Adil was actually the person who opened the door. And he said, listen, I have this violin. It says Shimon Korngold and everything. Do you know who Shimon Korngold was? And he said, of course, this was my uncle. He got the violin from the person and the violin basically stayed in the family since then. Now, we all know that there were lots of Jewish musicians in Warsaw before, during and after the war. One of the most famous of them, of course, is Ida Handel. And uh, we met in the Handel in those times almost every summer in our master class in Israel. And my father asked her, he said, do you know the name Yaakov Zimmerman? She said, of course. She told my father that when she was a child, she used to go to Yaakov Zimmerman with her father to have her instruments being repaired. She said that from what she remembers, he was an older person, probably in his 60s or 70s. He had white hair. Um, very nice person, and uh, this is what she remembered. And uh, also, my father spoke also to Michel Chevalbert, who I'm sure you know was the legendary concertmeister of the Berlin Philharmonic for many years. And Michel Chevalbert told my father that he remembered, my father asked him if he knew Yaakov Zimmerman, he said yes. He said that Yaakov Zimmerman used to give him all the instruments and do all the work for him for free, because he was coming from a very, very poor family. And when my father asked him if he knew Shimon Korngold, he also said this. He said that because his parents were too ashamed to bring the violin teacher home, his violin lessons were done at Shimon Korngold's house. And the only thing that we have from Shimon Korngold today is his violin and a photo of his playing on that violin in his music room in Warsaw before the war. This is this is absolutely amazing stuff, Afshi. And uh, you've obviously spent a vast amount of, of your life deeply involved with this as a project. I suppose the clue is in the title, but what is your purpose and goal with the collection as it stands now? So I lived all my life around um, Holocaust stories from my mother's side. Uh, my grandfather, my late grandfather who was killed in the war and my grandmother, they were part of uh, a partisan group who saved more than 1,230 people, the Bielski brothers. And every time we would go to my grandmother, the bedtime stories were partisans group, partisan stories. I mean, I don't know how much it suits today for five-year-old or six-year-old kids to hear that, but these were our bedtime stories. And unfortunately, most of the survivors are gone, or let's say too old to be able to talk. And we have to make sure that people remember and know, and maybe even if we are lucky enough, learn from the mistakes that our grandparents or great-great-parents and uh, the mistakes which were made then, hopefully never to come back again. Mm -hmm. So one of the main things that we do during a project of Violins of Hope, like we've done in many, many places, as you know, 
um, is the uh, educational program. Going to schools, talking to them, and bringing the Holocaust in a different angle. It's not just the numbers, it's the personal stories of the survivors or people who unfortunately died. Um, the stories which the instrument tells us about their previous owners. And the, the instruments are, are that real, almost living link, aren't they? That, that, that bring these, these stories, these hideous times to life. And I've been involved in two projects um, in Fort Wayne in Indiana and Reading in Pennsylvania. And I can vouch for how completely the community embraced the whole project. And it had such an amazing, amazingly telling effect on, on everybody there. Uh, particularly when, as people have told me, when the musicians in the orchestra actually played the instruments. And, and that was the, the, the real moment of that. Tell us a bit about these instruments, though, because they're, they're not all great instruments. They were real everyday instruments, weren't they, from, from the community? Well, the instruments that we have, I mean, I would love to tell you we have Sodivaris and Loneris and great Italian instruments. But yeah, but the guys who we were causing know, the trouble knew yeah, what we they were looking what, for. Uh, what the Nazis were such fans of this beautiful, amazing arts, and they knew exactly what they could get. And all those great instruments were confiscated or simply taken. Um, what we have, this would be, I would say, most of them are, would, would be probably students or in a adv very advanced student instrument in today's world. These are very cheap instruments, but we put a very big work inside and um, the importance is not the value. The importance is to hear the sound of what those people heard, the sound that they had when they played these instruments. Yeah, they were everyday and, instruments, weren't they? They were yeah, played at I mean, weddings, they were played at we gatherings. Could, they, and... they played everywhere. In, there were so many concerts in the camps, in the ghettos, everywhere. My father has a very thick book from Vilna uh, with all the concerts and uh, shows, um, um, posters, all the advertisement. And they had almost every single day, two, maybe even sometimes more events for the public in the ghetto. Concerts and plays. And I mean, the importance is to, to bring back the stories, to show people that this is not only numbers, we are talking about real human beings. And what are you finding the reaction around the world is to, to your project? I think it's a very good reaction. I mean, you as a conductor, I'm sure you conducted numerous orchestras with so many different players and let's say 60 to 70% of them probably has all the instruments, maybe yes. even more. Mm -hmm. Many of them might have had amazing history, but we will never know. And those instruments, because they come with a known history and you can put a face in a way to the person who held them, a name, timeline, it gives a very different feeling to be in a concert like that, I believe. And this is also what we see from the audience. And 
are they the best sounding instruments in the world? No, but you as a conductor, you've heard already two concerts. They sound not too bad. I mean, and the importance is simply to go on stage and tell the story. And the public reaction to the whole project when it's when it arrives in the community, because as an event, this doesn't just happen as a one-off performance. You said there are all sorts of discussions, education events, exhibitions, uh, and it really can um, be a, a major event for a week, two weeks in advance of, of a or big Or sometimes two or three months. Right. And tell me about the, the practicalities of it, though. You're touring with lots of instruments, and as we do this interview, I think you're in California, isn't that right? Yes, I'm right now in Los Angeles. Okay, and so you've been working there, and you will go on, I imagine... Uh, we were else. supposed to go to New York uh, mm -hmm. next week, basically, but unfortunately, the situation in New York doesn't allow to have the concerts done. Um, so we will be off for two months and then starting again in San Francisco. We had uh, two sold out concerts. I think it was 12th and 13th of, of March, 2020, but something small happened and we were supposed to postpone them in two weeks. It's almost two years. And hopefully we can do them in April this year. And then we start a big project in South Carolina. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, I mean, the instruments are traveling. Traveling today, as everybody knows, it's not that easy, but uh, we can still do that. How many instruments are you moving around? Now I think it's about 62. Mm -hmm. And some of those are specifically for exhibition, aren't they? I mean, they, they, yes. They were some of them you've pulled apart as well. Perhaps you can tell us some of the obvious stories about what you've discovered when you when you have taken instruments apart. So some of the instruments that we got, they came in a very poor condition. Um, one of them we simply left as it is for people to see what happens. It's one thing when you take a violin, viola or cello and you play a very long time on it and then your sweat and your hands and everything damage the varnish. I'm not talking only about cracks. It's one thing when you play on a violin outside, in rain, maybe even in snow, like many all these orchestras had to play because there were orchestras in every single camp who had to play every single day, open air with no roof. And the damage done by nature to those instruments is very different. And one of the varnishes that we left untouched, you can really see that the varnish is washed away. The only thing which is left on the top of the violin is a little bit of color from what sometimes you would uh, put underneath the varnish. But the varnish was literally washed away by water. And only on the top, which means no, no someone taking the violin, putting it into the tab, shaking it a little bit nicely, and then taking it out only the top. Um, we do repair the vast majority of the instruments that we have, so they can be played again um, in concerts all over the world. Sometimes they arrive in such a condition that it simply doesn't make sense to repair, so we leave them as is for people to see and understand what happened. 
we got one violin literally in a nylon bag. It was like a, making a new puzzle. And the varnish work took almost one year because the violin was, all the varnish was basically washed away. Now, as you travel around the world and people obviously react on a very intense emotional level to this because it, it's incredibly moving when you experience it. But w- what are you learning about all of this as you, as you take the, the collection around? Almost every place I've been to, I learned something. For example, in our recent project in Reading, which you conducted. So uh, they have a very, they had lots of survivors. And uh, I met one of the survivors in the exhibition in the Google Works. And the lady comes in and we started talking. And her first question was, she was coming also from Vilna, from Lithuania. She said, do you know the name Domarskin? And I said, yes, of course I know the name Domarskin. Um, and the story behind Domarskin, she said, yeah, because they were a very musical family. I said, yes, I know. I know his uh, daughter, uh, his nephew, actually. And um, I, I know about his brother-in-law, about his sister. Uh, my grandfather, uh, he finished the conservatory on violin in Vilna. And my father found a concert program in the flea market in Tel Aviv from 1936 of Domashkin conducting. Um, it was a concert of Jewish music, a small chamber orchestra, and my grandfather played viola in that orchestra. Now Domashkin himself, um, in the, during the war, he was captured, he was sent to the ghetto, and he died two or three weeks before the liberation, unfortunately. His brother-in-law, Max Becker, um, he was a Polish soldier when the war started. He was uh, caught, of course, with his unit about two or three weeks into the war with Poland, uh, September 1939. And um, usually what the Nazis did, they would separate Jewish prisoners of war from their own unit. But he was lucky enough to stay with his own unit for the rest of the war. Now, they knew that he is a violinist and they bought him a violin, the whole, all the prisoners. And he played in orchestras in the camps that they were, and this is how he survived. And when he was liberated, he moved uh, to Western Europe and there was an orchestra called, um, the, I don't know how exactly how to translate it to English, it's called the, the Leftovers Orchestra. It was orchestra which was made by survivors and uh, they played concerts for uh, the DP in the DP camps. And when Leonard Bernstein came to play concerts, he insisted playing two concerts with this orchestra when he was on tour in Europe. Max Becker married uh, the sister of Domarskin, and then later on they moved to New York, where he he lived basically until the rest of his days. And a few years ago, when we did a project in um, Dachau, I met his uh, daughter, Sonia Becker, and she gave us the violin for his, uh, in his memory, basically. And this is one of the instruments which is uh, played and uh, we have in the collection today. So you, you learn things everywhere you go. I mean, when I was in Knoxville, for example, 
after one of the concerts in Knoxville, Tennessee. We did a school, pro a school performance. A, a guy came to me and he said that his mother was probably one of the youngest, if not the youngest child who was sent on the kinder transports, the child transports, leaving Germany and Austria before the war. She was six months old when she was sent away. And she lived. These are harrowing stories, and I'm so happy for you that there have been reconnections on the extended family level as well. That must be um, very heartwarming for, for you. Uh, what about people who don't have direct connections to the Holocaust or the Jewish community? Um, how, do you, how do you assess their reaction when, when they come across the project? Usually the reactions are very good. People, they like to know the history behind the instruments they hear. And because this is a very sad history, of course, it's not something to celebrate, but it's people who like music. They like this story. We've done lots of things. And I think that uh, the vast majority of people who are coming to our, our um, concerts and lectures, they're not really Jewish, not actually Jewish. I mean, lots of Christians and We've done lots of things in many different churches. Usually it's packed in Fort Wayne. I don't think you've been in that evening. We've done a, a big concert in one of the churches and they had to put and put bring chairs all the time. They had to park on the other side of the street. There was no more parking. People appreciate hearing and learning stories. And it's not statistic. We are not talking about statistics. We can talk about Second World War statistics, but I think and I feel and believe that when we give this very small amount of stories that we still have, it touches in a different way. And Afshi, is this your whole life now? Does it take up all your time? No, it doesn't take all my time. I have my own workshop in Istanbul, in Turkey. I go there as much as I can, work as much as I can. Um, of course, during pandemic, there was not that much work, unfortunately, but uh, things are getting better. So you yourself are actually a violin maker? Yeah. I trained with my father. Not an easy thing. Um, <laughs> of course, it has its ups and downs and benefits and it's everything, but uh, it's not a very easy thing. And what do you see as being the future for Violins of Hope? We had once an offer to do a museum in Israel and put the instruments there. And I said no, because I think that traveling and bringing these instruments and stories to places that otherwise we'll never hear and um, giving kids a little bit of extra about the Holocaust is more important than having a nice exhibition in a beautiful museum that uh, a very limited amount of people will actually see. I think that the most important thing is the educational part, um, to go and talk the, to the kids. Unfortunately, today there is not enough time and money to, to teach everything we would like to teach the kids. And this is a little bit of extra gravy we can put on or extra some, it's a, an extra thing that we have the chance to give to the kids, and I think it's a very important. 
Actually, a name I want to to mention to you is Alma Rosé, who was um, a figure within the Holocaust music world, if I can coin that phrase, a horrible phrase, but you know what I mean. A very relevant personality. Tell us about her. So Alma Rosé was a very famous musician, of course, before the war. Her father, Arnold Rosé, was uh, the founder of the Rosé Quartet, and he was the leader of the Vienna Philharmonic for many, many years. We all know her uncle, Gustav Mahler. And uh, from what I know, the Rosé family, also the Mahlers, they converted to be Christians many years before the war. And still in 1938, uh, when the Nazis took over Austria, during one of the rehearsals, one of the players from the orchestra got up and told Arnold, take your things and go, you have no place here anymore. Arnold took his family, they moved to London, and um, unfortunately, his daughter Alma decided she wants to go back to Europe and play concerts. She had a very successful women ensemble before the war. Before the war, they played light music, valses, and concerts all over Europe. And she wanted to go back to this life. She moved to Holland, if I remember right. And unfortunately, when the war started, sometime afterwards, she was caught by the Nazis. Now the Nazis knew exactly who she was, who was her father, her uncle, and uh, still she was sent basically to Birkenau, Auschwitz II, the women camp next to the big uh, Auschwitz camp. And she was treated, if you can say something like that, like a celebrity among the other prisoners. She was put in charge of the women orchestra in Birkenau. And from what I heard and what I read, Alma believed that um, if the women will play well and work hard, the Nazis will keep them alive. So what she did, she was working with them every single day. They learned new pieces, new repertoire, trying to be the best they can. And this is how she kept them alive. There are some amazing stories. Uh, one of them is a the story of the mother of what I understood, a very close friend of yours, Raphael Valfish. His mother, Anita Lasker Valfish, she was, I think, 14 or 16 years old, a very gifted cellist, when she was sent to Auschwitz and she became a part of that orchestra. And uh, a few years ago, we had a project, a small concert in Auschwitz with Raphael, and he told us that few months after his mother arrived to the camp, his sister was sent to the camp. And the guy who admitted his sister, his aunt, his mother's sister, looked on her and said, listen, I've seen these sandals before. There is another girl here in the camp who had the same exact sandals. And this is how the two sisters got reunited. Wow. Um, Alma herself, unfortunately, died two or three months before the liberation. But um, the women, I think 20 or 22 out of uh, 24 survived. There is an amazing story of one of the women. She became very sick, was sent to the clinic or whatever you can call a clinic in a concentration camp. And usually these places were one-way ticket. You go in, your next stop is basically the gas chambers. And uh, 
the notorious uh, uh, Dr. Mengele, he was taking a walk in the clinic. He saw this woman, looked on her charts, saw that she was there for a long time, looks at her, she's in bad condition, goes to the nurse, says, why is she still here? And the nurse says, well, doctor, she belongs to the orchestra. He walked away and the woman lived. Mm. Avshi, you are quite amazing the way you tell these stories. And um, I want to thank you and congratulate you in a way on on the, the way you present all of these different aspects of the Holocaust to people in such um, an unemotional way. But behind your eyes, I can see now that that you're, you're very moved by all of this. And, and it's a huge responsibility for you. Because as you say, you want to keep these stories in people's minds and everybody to be aware of them. So history doesn't repeat itself, those sort of things. And I hope it hasn't taken a, a personal toll on you because every time I hear you speak and, and, and get to meet you, I, I feel as though I've been energized in a way I hadn't imagined beforehand. And I hope lots of other people, once they've heard this podcast, when they see this project, Violins of Hope, coming near them, they'll take the chance and the opportunity to, to come along, hear you speak, meet you, see the violins, hear the violins. I can only congratulate you and your father and the rest of your family on everything you've done and achieved. So thank you for that. I want to ask you a question, if I may, and I hope it doesn't seem fatuous at this stage, but if there was one thing in your life that you want to be remembered for most that you're most proud of, what would that be? First of all, I want to thank you very much for so many compliments. And I'm sure if there was a video, you would see that I'm blushing. <laughs> but um, I, first of all, I also want to thank you for doing the concerts that you've done um, and doing them the way you did it. I mean, it was, I'm sure it's not easy for you to, to go on stage and play when, with you know that the sound that's going to come is not the regular sound that you're used from this that orchestra. It's a very big responsibility in the end because we are always being uh, judged by the sound. And uh, not everybody would take this uh, so-called risk. So this I really have to say thank you from the bottom of my heart of for allowing us to bring those instruments into the stage and to your concerts. and. Um, I hope we will do it together many, many more times. As do I, but it's no. a privilege, actually. Trust me, it's a privilege. Yeah. Thank you. But regarding your question, that's a very tough one. Um, I honestly don't know what to say. I hope that people will remember and um, when they come to remember coming to concerts and hearing these instruments. But I also hope that they remember that those very simple instruments also sounds good. And this is not something that only up to me and my father, the work we do, it's also up to the musicians who play them, who take their, their chance or risk or whatever you want to call it, to take an instrument which is not theirs, that they didn't play for a long time and put it on stage and put it as their sound and voice, as voice. And the conductors like you who take this 
instruments to their stage and give them such an amazing place. And the educational part that uh, people learn and hear and maybe if they're intrigued enough, they'll go and research and learn a little bit more and learn from the lessons that hopefully we all, all of us learned already. Um, and we will never make the same mistakes again. That's a message we all want to hope is true. Ashley Weinstein, I can't thank you enough. You take care of yourself and I hope you to too, see you Andrew. soon, my friend. I hope to see you very soon. Take care. Thank you again for all this. The Violins of Hope Project, the concerts, events, exhibitions and discussions, is constantly touring the world. It may be coming to a place near you, particularly major symphony orchestras. And I urge you, if it is, to make some time to seek it out. Next time, my guest will be Kathy Schumann, the Artistic Director at the Caramore Center for Music and the Arts in New York State. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick with a Point. <laughs>